This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're tuned in to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. Now, last Friday, Minister in the Prime Minister's Department, Datuk Sri Wan Junaidi, announced that the government will abolish the mandatory death penalty, meaning that judges will have the discretion to impose alternative sentences where previously this was not allowed. This would apply to 11 crimes that currently impose a compulsory death sentence for those convicted. Now, this is a widely lauded step, but it also puts a spotlight on the effectiveness of Malaysia's overall criminal justice system and reforms that should be considered alongside sentencing reform. So joining me on the show today to discuss this is Uma Vatani Vatanagandan, Collective Operating Officer at the Collective of Applied Law and Legal Realism, also known as CALR for short. Uma, good morning. Thanks very much for joining me today. I believe you. Hi, Shazana. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's talk about the latest news that came out on Friday, right? So this isn't the first time that the government signaled it was looking to abolish the death penalty. I think this announcement first came up sometime back in 2019, but it didn't uh, really go much further than a statement of intent. Um, So in a way, this decision falls far short of removing the death penalty altogether. It still remains on the books, the death penalty, but judges can now choose not to impose the sentence. So when you look at it in that way, is this announcement really as significant as it's made out to be? So, yeah, um, my take on this is I think it is a step forward for Malaysia, especially now that Malaysia is a member of the Human Rights Council. So I think it's also a a first step to see um, Malaysia being transparent in telling the public that, you know, we are actually going to abolish death penalty, mandatory death penalty. And I think a lot of civil society are actually feeling quite optimistic about this. And it's going to be significant not only in Malaysia, but also in the region, in Southeast Asia, in terms of, you know, seeing the trends in the region. And, you know, it could be like a domino effect. Malaysia could be an example for other countries to follow suit. But again, we need to see what's next now that the announcement has been made. And I think um, civil society advocacy still continues on. That's a really good point that you make there, Uma. The fact that this is... um pretty significant, especially within the region, and the fact that it could trigger um, a domino effect in other countries. That's something I didn't quite think about before. Um, But uh, as you said, uh, it's important for the discussion to continue. And uh, we still need to see concrete steps from the government, um, apart from this statement of intent, a renewed statement of intent that's very much welcome. Um, What are the steps that uh, you see need to take place for this decision to be fully implemented moving forward? So what's next is actually a question for all of us too. So the government, I mean, it's already moving into the direction it's headed towards. And it's commendable that the announcement was made first. Like I mentioned, that's the first step of transparency, I believe. Um, It's a human rights-based approach, right? Um, But what comes after requires a continuity in political will and engagements with civil society organizations and other relevant stakeholders in translating these words into action. So that means amendments of the relevant legislations will need to be tabled and passed in the parliament without any further delay. And to carry out um, research on alternative sentencing, we have to bear in mind that it should not add or contribute 
to any concerning issues such as overcrowding, which we've been seeing in the past few years since 2018, and how do we mitigate these issues? So there are a number of things that the government needs to do at this point of time, and what we as civil society could hope for is that the government follows through um, with the statement, with its action. All right. So there are a lot of laws that need to be looked into in order to um, make sure that this uh, decision is implemented. Um, I, I want we'll we'll go into sort of the implications of what this is for the broader criminal justice system. As you mentioned, the issue of overcrowding, um, overcrowding prisons. But um, I did kind of want to ask what you thought about what society thinks about the death penalty. Yeah. So as much as we like to believe that we're compassionate people. Um, the truth remains that the death penalty and harsh sentences um, still have strong support among society. So what do you think that says about how we view the purpose of the criminal justice system? Do you think that the punitive element is what we prioritize? Um, My take on this is actually, this is quite an interesting question because um, based on the last report that we've done, which was on prison and detention, all places of detention centers, reforms, we actually tried to look into this emotion, emotion, emotional aspect of it. So like we're talking about stigmatization and prejudice towards persons derived, deprived of their liberty, sorry. So I think this is the most challenging that, um, that is challenging to address. We are talking about citizen perception. It's a challenge and it's also an issue that is tied to the openness of you know, citizens towards these individuals in its attempt to reintegrate back into the society. So we're talking about emotions and the psychological aspects that are involved to tackle the stigmatization. And um, I think it's what happens after this also is that we need to re-educate or increase that awareness among the public as to, you know, why this is necessary. And, you know, when we're talking about punitive uh, justice and also restorative justice, there, these two are two different approaches. We are talking, if we are talking about punitive justice, we are looking at an eye for an eye, or perhaps it could not be fair either. Like you know, one person could just be punished for something that they did not do. You know, they are probably innocent. And restorative justice focuses more on rehabilitating these people. You are transforming these people's lives. We want to reintegrate them back into the society, and you know, to see what are the root causes as to why this has happened in the first place? Right. So I guess the it's the restorative justice part that's not given enough attention, really. I think everyone, <laughs> I suppose we can be quite, I don't want to use the word bloodthirsty, but there is a sense of when we say justice, it means, um, like you said, it's an eye for an eye. That seems to be, I suppose, the accepted means of what justice is. But uh, as I agree with you when you say that in terms of the stigma that's attached to um, people who have been convicted, uh, it doesn't think about what happens after that. You've got you've been convicted, you've been sentenced, maybe you've served your sentence. But what happens after that is something that's really not uh, thought about enough. Um, mm-hmm. And 
I, I want to come back to that issue of sentencing then, because with the uh, mandatory death penalty um, being abolished and judges given more discretion to sentence, um, especially for the three types of crimes covering 11 offenses that have the current mandatory death penalty, uh, the government said that they're looking into alternative sentences. But what are the alternative sentences available? I'm, I'm thinking that this would just generally be imprisonment. And given the nature of the crimes, they would tend to be long prison terms. Would that be accurate? Um, I think, like you mentioned, this is something that needs to be well thought through. Um, it's not only the role of the executive, but also the judiciary. It has to be a collective approach um, that is undertaken by these two um, branches. And um, it definitely could lead to a longer sentence or like, you know, life imprisonment. And when this happens, like I mentioned earlier, the executive and the judiciary as a collective will then need to re-strategize itself, you know, on the ways on how it could mitigate this issue, such as overcrowding. And, you know, if you re refer to the figures um, based on World Prison Brief and also some previously news reports um, that were online, our prison systems have already exceeded its capacity since 2018. That is two years before the pandemic. So if this continues on, how do we mitigate this? And, you know, if I were to put it in this way, sebelum nasi menjadi bubur, you're right. That's such a great uh, saying to bring in at this context. I mean, we, we're still at the nasi stage. We haven't really become bubur yet. So to, we have the need to put in the efforts to make sure that, uh, yeah, we don't become porridge, essentially. More <laughs> on this in just a bit. I'm speaking to Uma Vatani Vadaganandan, researcher with the Collective of Applied Law and Legal Realism, on the government's decision to do away with the mandatory death penalty. We'll come back in a moment to discuss further what this means for broader reform efforts of Malaysia's criminal justice system. BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to Pressing Matters. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. And on the show with me today is Uma Vantani Vatanagantan, the COO of the Collective of Applied Law and Legal Realism, or CALR. We're discussing reactions to the government's announcement last Friday that it was abolishing the mandatory death penalty, and also what this means about broader reforms to Malaysia's criminal justice system. So, Uma, earlier um, you were talking about uh, prison overcrowding and the fact that our prisons have actually been overcrowded even before the pandemic. Um, I know that you and Swaram worked together to come up with a report that was issued recently on the challenges of uh, Malaysian prisons and detention centres. Um, can you talk me through um, how what your findings were in that paper? What um, what did the pandemic experience crystallize about the problems of our prison system? Um, the thing is that when we carried out this research, a lot of it, we tried to use information that are available online already. And how we try to supplement this data and information is through interviews carried out, I mean, with the assistance of Swaram. Um, and what we found, of course, a number of reports were on the overcrowding in these facilities. And what happens is that if you look at it in a circle, like you see overcrowding, there's also other contributing um, issues and challenges that are tied to it and also results in like consequences in the system. So we have concerns on health and living conditions and then we have inadequate budget for facilities. 
We have lack of centralized, available and accessible data. And the last one, like I mentioned earlier, citizen perception and social reintegration. So, of course, the main concern here is overcrowding. And when there's overcrowding, there's also, you know, there's concerns on health and living condition. You know, that people are living together in a cramped cell and, you know, what, how, how are their health being um, taken care of, especially during the pandemic with the COVID-19 situation? Is there social distancing that is, you know, um, practice or like, you know, are they given masks or and so on and so forth? So those are the things that we were looking into. And what we found also outside of these facilities is that there is, you know, inadequate budget for facilities. We're looking at the budget speech that was given by the finance minister at that time. We noticed that there is a small portion, I would say, um, about a paragraph or two that speaks about um, allocation for prisons and also activities that are related to it, you know, in terms of rehabilitation and also other, um, we're talking about, say, um, I think it, that's one that I came across, which was to build a weaving complex or something. And then the other thing is on the lack of centralized and available and accessible data, which we can't really find, you know, the data on how many people are now in prisons, for example, the number varies from reports, from one report to the other. And the last one, the citizen perception and social reintegration, we're talking a lot about how media has portrayed these people. And also, you know, I think a lot of us are influenced by our environment. So that has sort of like shifted our perspective towards people who are deprived of their liberty. So can we change that? That's the other question. Mm. That is something that that's why we put it at last. But what we, we are trying to say is that all of this are interlinked and they're not mutually exclusive. And what we did after was to find some of the best practices um, globally. And what we have picked, uh, the countries that we have picked were Sweden, Norway and Germany. So the thing about Norway is that like a lot of countries actually look up to them in terms of, you know, how can they improve their, their prison system? And it was said that um, Norway has the lowest recidivism rate and has banned life sentences. And if we were to compare their population rate with ours, it's quite a big difference, actually. We are talking about more than 30 million in Malaysia and like... Um, in Norway, there's only 5.379 million people. And the prison population at that time when um, we cited this in this report was 2,932, which makes up 0.05% of the total population. And the thing is that um, majority of these Scandinavian countries actually have a small gap between the rich and the poor. So the wealth is distributed more evenly, which is why I said, like, you know, we need to really understand the root cause as to why these offences are made in the first place. Hmm. Or I mean, like, you know, you want to know, like, is it because of, you know, their socioeconomic situation that it's there? And from there on, you need to break that cycle and not ensure that it's continued on after. And if that is not, um, if it's not mitigated or it's not addressed, the cycle continues and we will see no end to it. So, yeah. so from what from what I'm hearing, it's it's a I like to see it as a big puzzle piece, right? And all there, 
for example, abolishing the mandatory death penalty, that's one piece of the puzzle. But then there's also the socioeconomic um, situation of the entire country. That's another piece. And then looking at uh, the assistance that's given to uh, people who've been released from prison, that's another piece. And all this comes together. So mm. reforms on one piece um, may not necessarily, is good, but it may not necessarily have an impact or have the have the wanted impact if reforms on all the other pieces aren't looked at as well. Um, I wanted to to come. I wanted to zero in on the point you made about the lack of data, Uma, because I feel like without data, without knowing what the situation is, it would be then very hard uh, to come up with policy to respond to that. So, could you maybe walk me through a little bit about um, the challenges that you that you that you went through in trying to collect data uh, on for this report? Like, where do you see the gaps? What what isn't transparent enough um, based on your research? Yeah, so um, like you mentioned earlier, yes, the lack of data and statistics, it actually is a challenge on both on the ground advocacy and especially when we were drafting the report and also, you know, to advance prison reforms. So what we did was we tried to find some of these numbers and figures that we encountered from news articles you know, like where in 2018, there were um, reports saying there's this number of, um, um, I would say, persons deprived of their liberty. I don't want to use prisoners at times. So there is this number in this year. And then another report says something else. And oftentimes also, we also need to rely on official, I would say it's official data if you're getting a parliamentary response because mm. it is recorded, right? So we have to rely on that. And sometimes the numbers also varies. And there's this 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 um, data portal in Malaysia, which is called the Malaysian Public Sector Open Data Portal. And this is an open portal where the public could actually request for information or data on specific things that they would like to look into. So what I found at that time was that there were a number of data regarding prisons. Um, I mean, a breakdown of um, if persons derives of deprived of their liberty, mm-hmm. um, but the thing is, you know, there's you know like how when you use an uh, a website, there's this place where you can search a term. So if say you are searching it in English, it's going to the the results will all come out only in English, meaning like the data that uh-huh. that has been provided in English will only come out then, and it won't reflect in the Malay. Um, the Malay language one. So it becomes quite a tricky thing because as I was doing it, I was searching it in English and I found like there were, I think one or two data on it. And then when I searched in in BM, there was just numerous. So at that time, it was very hard to also track. Um, But I think we tried to pick where we could find this data and, you know, try to find a little bit of the middle ground. Um, like I think sometime in uh, 2019, the reported number of um, those in prisons were at 71,785. But if you look at the database, I mean, based on the, the information that's provided on the portal, it was in 2019, it was 138,000, 138,000, 44,000 people. That was a total. But also, you know, we need to also bear in mind that there could be a discrepancy, you know, in identifying what the true figure or what the range as to the number of um, persons deprived of their liberty entering and also leaving the prisons between that time span. 
That's such a crucial <laughs> statistic point that's needed in order to be able to um, actually implement reforms. Um, so I'm, uh, that's something that that's an important thing that you've highlighted there. And I feel like this discussion can go on for so much more time. We don't have much time left, though. So maybe very quickly, Uma, in terms of um, priority reforms or priority steps that you think the government needs to look at when it comes to reforming the way um, we detain people or our prison system, what do you think uh, would be on the top of your wish list in terms of what the government needs to do? I think there's a lot to just say <laughs> sure. so much. It's just the same as challenges and the issues. There's, there's countless of them. And like, I think at least I would like to reiterate based on the report that we have done, um, which the first is I think implementing the human rights-based approach in practices. We need to uphold ourselves considering that Malaysia is now part of the Human Rights Council. Uh, human rights Council. So it needs to implement a human rights-based approach in all its practices, you know, where it concerns human beings and we're not, you know, prison is no less. So it is it is fundamental that it covers principles such as equality and non-discrimination, accountability, participation, empowerment and legality. So then comes after committing to transparency and accountability, which, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier on, Malaysia has done its step forward. It has moved a step forward in committing to transparency by informing the public that it is committed to abolish the mandatory death penalty. So it has to commit to transparency and accountability. It has to increase its availability and accessibility of official data, that's one, and also to enact a right to information legislation. This is something that, that could be something that they could look into. And the last one, just one more, is to actually implement pre-measures to incarceration, alternatives to detention and emphasising on normalisation. Uma, thank you very much. We're going to have more conversations on this in the future where we can really go at length and to parse all the different um, proposals on the table. But thank you for your time. I've been speaking to Uma Vantani Vatanagantan, the CEO of the Collective of Applied Law and Legal Realism. They have a report out with Suwaram on prison reforms. You can look that up on the Suwaram website. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. We're heading into the 10 a.m. News Bulletin and then it's over to Enterprise. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.